Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome to Episode 70 of That's So Second Millennium. In today's episode, we sit down with Father Nicanor Austriaco, a Dominican friar, a biologist, and a bioethicist, on the faculty at Providence College. Similarly to our interview with Father Lawrence Mascia, we discuss the way in which science and a vocation to both the priesthood and life in a specific religious order have intertwined in his life. We also discuss the additional perspective that his Filipino heritage contributes to his understanding of his vocation and the culture here in America. We talk about a difference between a relationship versus what we call at one point an owner's manual perspective on ourselves and on our lives and how rules are in an important sense secondary to relationships. We talk about it all the time, and yet we forget it so easily in this culture. So with that, here is our interview with Father Nicanor Austriaco. Welcome back to That's Our Second Millennium. We're very privileged here to have Father Nicanor Austriaco from Providence College here to talk with us. He is a Dominican friar, and he's also a uh, biological researcher. Mm-hmm. So he gave a talk, a great talk. What is today? Monday? He's trapped time. Two days ago mm-hmm. in the afternoon session at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference. And we're here to discuss with him a little bit about his life, his vocation, both as a friar and as a scientist. Thank you for having me on your podcast. We appreciate it. We really appreciate you making the time. So, well, which, which of those, which came first? Uh, which did you know earlier in life that you wanted to pursue? So, I think, oh, definitely the science first. Okay. Uh, and you can see that in the, the way that my life has, 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 you know, has been revealed in Providence. Um, so, I wanted to be a cancer biologist to win the Nobel Prize. And so, I ended up pursuing a PhD in biology mm-hmm. at MIT. But it was actually at MIT that I encountered the Lord. And so that encountering, that encounter with the Lord in the context of the Catholic Fellowship at MIT, mm-hmm. which is a group of 30 or so, at that time, 30 or so students, undergraduates and graduates, students who are deeply passionate about the Catholic faith, deeply passionate about the relationship between faith and reason. We read catechism, we read the Fathers of the Church, we read everything we could get our hands on and we argued through that. Mm-hmm. And... I was incredibly surprised to discover that Catholic faith is, is incredibly reasonable mm-hmm. and that not only is it reasonable, it is incredibly fulfilling and capable of bringing great joy. And that's what the fellowship allowed me to do. And, and that began the pursuit of, of, of the Lord, where basically actually where I was able to just pause and let him catch up with me. And then <laughs> when he catches you and you're, you're caught, in the fire of his love that becomes very difficult to let go. And yeah. So within a year after graduating with my PhD, I resigned my position and entered the Dominican Order. What position was that? So I was then a research fellow at University College London, okay. where I was setting up my own laboratory to look at the biology of aging mm-hmm. uh, using yeast cells as model organisms. And you continue some of that research down in the present. Well, not aging actually, because one of the things that that aging research involves is incredibly tedious, days long, weeks long experiments, and 
as a professor at a primarily undergraduate institution, it was clearly unreasonable for me to pursue that line of research. So I moved over a little bit. My students and I are now looking at how cells commit suicide. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So the yeast is commonality. That's correct. Which is great, actually, because I didn't know that when I picked the lab at MIT, but yeast is incredibly powerful as a model organism and yet incredibly cheap. Yes. And which is great when you're working with undergrads. And also, they grow so quickly that you can start an experiment every day. Yeah. Which, if you were, for example, if you were working with mice, mm-hmm. you'd have to wait a couple of months, not a couple of years, in order to get one experiment done. Yeah. yeah. Depending on how many generations you need to go through. Yeah. 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 Yeast. And yeast are somewhat actually closer to animal life than molecules or biogenetic sense. Is that right? So that's actually, in, in one sense, because they are, um, I think the best way to put it is the evolutionary distance between between us and yeast is probably as far as it is from us. Okay. Okay. But one of the great things about working with yeast is that they're the fundamental processes that govern and drive cellular life have been conserved. And that's a technical term to mean that there is sufficient overlap between the genes that make yeast cells run and the genes that make human cells run that you can actually learn about human cells by looking at yeast cells. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's you prefer to have that. Exactly. Yeah, as much as you can. Um... Bill, did you want to put something in? Well, uh, what you said a moment ago struck me. How cells commit suicide—that's fascinating. Uh, uh, was that um, uh, the, the way that, uh, that cells become cancerous? Is that no. One way so, to you, so human cells, but well, all cells, incorporate suicide sometimes. So, for example, if you look at your fingers, uh, your individual fingers, your individual digits are free. Because the cells that were in between your digits committed suicide. And if that doesn't work, then you actually, you've met people where they, their fingers are fused to each other. And the reason why they're fused to each other is because the cells didn't commit suicide. So another example is a tadpole. So if you look at a tadpole, my students will say, what happened to their tails? Right? It's a tadpole metamorph, underwent metamorphosis in order to become an adult toad. Well, what happens is the, the cells actually kill themselves, and then they're gradually, all the nutrients are reabsorbed back into the animal, which is why you have a tail that slowly disappears in order for you to get the animal that you get. Now, cancer cells actually are cells that do not commit suicide, which is why they, they can become a tumor, which is why trying to understand how cells commit suicide allows you, hopefully, to trigger suicide in tumors so that you can get them to kill themselves. Fascinating. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I see. To actually get them to do what they're supposed to do. Things go wrong. Yeah. Is that the technical term is apoptosis? That's right. So, yeah. well, so it's actually programmed cell death. Programmed cell and there are different ways. There are different that's, forms. That's one of the methods. Apoptosis is one. Autophagy is the other one. So there, there are many different kinds of programmed okay. cell death. Autophagy was the first, I mean, Apoptosis was the first kind to be discovered, but we've discovered that there's a lot more than that. When was that discovered? Oh, so it, apoptosis, programmed cell death, was first characterized in the 
eighties and nineties in at MIT actually in mm-hmm. in Worms. Okay. So and we've come a long way since then. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a friend who was as an undergrad was involved in the apoptosis research at Washington St. Louis, I believe, about nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. So well, was it worms or was it mammalian cells? I think it was mice. I would okay. have to ask him. Yeah, yeah. He, he did mention that. That's I remember hearing that term back when I was young. Yeah, it was a it was a funny yeah a new concept. So yeah, I mean it, it seems like such a critical thing, and yet we've only known about it since the eighties. That's uh, that's kind of impressive. Fascinating must be a um, must have been an absolutely fascinating discovery at the time. Well, I think a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people have known about death. Uh, it's such an integral component of human life. They knew about cell death, but they thought that cell death was something that happened due to external factors. And I yeah. think program cell death. The revolution that involved program cell death was this insight that cells actually carry a genetic program mm-hmm. that kills from within rather than killing from without. Yeah, yeah. But they do that actually for the betterment of the organism mm-hmm. as a whole, or even maybe the community as a whole in certain cases. So, yeah. Um, does that happen in single cell organisms? Is there a certain amount of. Uh, yeah, so yeast is a single cell organism and. What we don't realize is that yeast live within the context of a colony. Mm-hmm. And so individual cells within a colony will undergo cell death in order for other cells in the colony to survive. Mm-hmm. And so you have something similar to parallel to a human body that now is in the context of a colony. Okay. And is that, does that have any little prokaryotes? So prokaryotes, so I'm just going to tell your audience because I'm not sure if they yeah. have any bacteria. Yeah. So, so there are basically three kinds of cells in the world. Uh, there are eukaryotic cells, and then there's uh, two kinds of bacteria, the bacteria and the archaebacteria. And both the archaebacteria and the bacteria are prokaryotes in that they are thought to be a similar kind of cell. No one is quite sure if prokaryotes have program cell death in the way that you and I do, it's clear they probably die in command. There are examples of this in specific bacteria. But whether or not that genetic program is related to the genetic program that we often see in, in our cells is still unclear. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there are people working on that. That'd be another fascinating topic. Let's go back a little bit to your uh, vocation. What was, the, what was it like discerning, you know, starting from what sounded like a very secular background? least a secular outlook at one point in your life, going all the way to being a Dominican friar. I'm Filipino yeah. by birth, and Filipinos have Christianity, have yeah. Catholicism in their blood. So, yeah. and, and I've always lived in an enchanted world. So it's not really that, I, I, I would never really see myself as secular in that way, okay. but I think that what actually happens, like many people, is that you get caught up with your particular dreams and your particular ambitions and aspirations and what actually happens is we forget that we are invited to live with and through and in God's dreams for us and I think my, my, my deeper conversion in the Lord is really to, to discover that the fullness of life the fullness of joy, the fullness of happiness happens not on your terms but on God's terms and you are invited to in a sense Come to terms with those types. Yeah. 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 
guess I would probably put in parenthetically not only not just your terms, but also not necessarily other people's terms, but God's terms. That's uh, yeah. So uh, so uh, so you had this position at University College London, and then what was what was the sort of nuts and bolts of your path from there into? Uh, so I was a fellow at UCL, yeah. and when I was at my position, just like every other Dominican. Before me and every other Dominican who will come after me, I began as a novice. So I, I had one, it basically got to be So I yes. spent one year in the novitiate and I belong to the Dominican order, but the Dominican order is divided into provinces yeah. and I belong to the Eastern province, the province of St. Joseph. Mm-hmm. And our novitiate is in Cincinnati, Ohio, okay. in the, at the parish of St. Gertrude's. Okay. And so I spent a year and a day there. Basically, learning how to be quiet. So, so, so learning to sit still. Yeah. And learning to sit still without fretting over who you are because there is a God. And that there is a God who loves you and forgives you and is deeply merciful. Yeah. I've heard uh, the, the maxim that uh, if the devil can't make you evil, he'll make you busy. Busy. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard the acronym being under Satan's yoke. Busy. Yeah. 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 Busyness. So it sounds like a wonderful. Well, that's first a deeply year. American perspective. Uh-huh. So when I grew up in Asia, yeah. busyness is not considered the epitome of life. Right. It's a deeply, deeply American view. It's one way uh, that American, I mean, the emptiness of American culture, the decay of American culture uh, is really manifested in this hyper people believe that their fulfillment comes in what they do rather than who they are. And so what ends up happening is they overwork, they work themselves to death. Okay. And so from there, uh, at some point in the Dominicans, you take a vow of obedience. Yeah, so what happened is after a year, I began my formation for the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and that required that I take several more courses and a bunch more courses in, in philosophy and theology. And um, I, I was ordained 15 years ago, and I finished, I had one more year at our seminary, the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, okay. and I finished there with a license in theology. And then my religious superior sent me to Providence College, which is the, our liberal arts university in Rhode Island. And I was sent there to set up a research laboratory and to teach, given that I already had had, yeah. I'd already finished my PhD in biology. Yeah, yeah. And at some point, uh, you went for a, uh, a doctorate in moral theology. So um, I'm a geek. Yes. And my and I and I'm a gift for God. That's what Dominicans are. And, yes. and what happened is that there was a need for a difficult degree yeah. for the accreditation of our contemporary faculty, and so I was asked to pursue a second doctorate. So I pursued a doctorate in theology in at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland, and I and I had the great privilege of working with Father Michael Sherwood, who's another Dominican from the, from the Western Province, and he's a a really world-class moral theologian, and I got to train with him. And so I have basically, uh, you know, I work right now at the interface of science and moral theology, which is why I do a lot of bioethics. Yeah, yeah. which is you know, uh, the focus of your talk here at the 
this for a cast on the issues that raises is our ability to edit our own genome or the genome in most cases. So, um, would you, is there something else you wanted to put in, Bill? No, um, I, please go on. Um, I wanted to ask a few questions if you had time, and it looks like we have a little time. Um, I was looking at some of your writings, and I noticed, I believe one of the titles was Human Nature's Normative Concept. Um, what ways, I wanted to ask in, in that context, and of course not having had a chance to read that whole um, piece, but human nature, obviously that's a core you know, understanding of Catholic moral theology. Well, I think it's it, it's not just Catholic moral theology. I think there's an intuition yeah. in every single one of our hearts. Like, not not meant to exclude that as well. Yeah. I think biology. I think one of the things that's important is that biology biology helps us to understand what is good and perfective for living things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of my students will talk about chocolate. We love chocolate, but clearly they'll always add chocolate is bad for dogs. Yeah. And the reason they know why chocolate is bad for dogs is that dogs eat chocolate, especially right after Easter. What happens is many of them get really sick. Yeah. And so what you're seeing here is that biology can help you figure out what's good for you and what's not good for you. And I think we tend to forget that. We tend to forget that human beings are biological creatures shaped and created by God using a evolutionary process that process that's over three and a half billion years and that part of our fulfillment and our perfection involves trying to understand our instinctual desires figuring out which of those desires are truly perfected which of those desires have to be mastered in order for us to fulfill to be fulfilled as persons rather than things and so that in, in many ways that's the gist of Catholic moral theology, it's this deep conviction that God calls us to joy. Yeah. And that part of that call to joy involves us being fulfilled as biological animals. Yeah. Yeah. And not getting lost in what we might call local minimum of pleasure or other forms of satisfaction. Well, I mean, there is a legitimate place for pleasure because if you are going to have joy, then there has to be a certain, you know, yeah. pleasures are not necessarily intrinsically wrong. What happens is we have to figure out which pleasures are fulfilling of human nature, and especially our destiny in Christ, and which pleasures, which though pleasurable in the short term, are actually detrimental to joy, right? And, and I teach this in class, and I point out that pleasure is not joy, right. uh, because there are some times when, Pleasure doesn't lead to joy, it leads to anti-joy. Yeah. And and yet there are times where you can find great joy in in circumstances that people would say are not pleasurable, but they're difficult. Yeah. But but they're but they're difficult for reasons that fulfill the human heart. Right. Yeah, that, that pleasures sought as ends in themselves tend to drift off in that direction very quickly. In terms of not being not leading to joy. Again. Pleasure can be an end in itself, as long as that end is ordered towards your ultimate end. So, so I, I, one of the great things about St. Thomas and his account of the human nature is that 
I, 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 re, I keep telling my students, right? Gospel tells us that we should have amazing sex. Right? Sex should be incredibly pleasurable. That sex should be incredibly ecstatic. But that, and so, and it should, and it should be pursued as something that's incredibly pleasurable and incredibly ecstatic. But again, within a particular context yeah. of total integral human fulfillment. So, yeah. so, so again, it's a. We have to be very careful because, especially our there, there are strands of our of Christianity that are deeply suspicious of pleasure. Yeah. Is, oh yeah, and and the Catholic tradition is very clear that pleasure is a good. It's a gift. It's a grace. Yeah. However, it must always be experienced within the context of. The of, of of the fulfillment that Christ calls us to in, yeah. in, in the divine life. Yeah. That description of um, the biological pursuit as uh, uh, understanding what's good for us makes me think. I've heard of uh, I've heard a number of folks describe uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church as kind of an owner's manual for the soul. Or an owner's manual. Extended owner's manual. Yes. Again, telling us how to how's the best way to live. Is there indeed some kind of spiritual versus scientific analog between these two pursuits of how to know um, how to know what works best in the human person? So, prior to the Catechism, you have Sacred Scripture, right? And if you compare the Catechism to a manual, then I will compare the Sacred Scripture to a love letter, right? Because because one of the things that's really deep, a very hard Christianity is rather than seeing life as about figuring out how to live, it's about figuring out who your friends are. And the love letter that is the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to be friends with God. And part of struggle is that today is that we instrumentalize our life. And we see our lives primarily in machine terms, which is why you have control issues, mm-hmm. where Christianity is, a, is, is an invitation to friendship. And it's an invitation that God offers to us first and foremost. And so there are certain expectations that come with friendship, right? And the catechism shows us what those expectations are. But it's expectations that are driven not because we have to do it, There are expectations that we pursue because the friend that we love dearly is calling us to holiness and and to happiness. So so in my classes, I tend to emphasize that Christianity calls us to friendship, to joy, to fullness, to life, um, and that the rules that we, we, we see are secondary to the relationships that we are called to build with Christ and his most holy mother. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's why I uh, probably heard the term owner's manual, precisely because we view ourselves in mechanistic... It, it, that's the thing, terms. right? So when you have an owner's manual, what you see, the view of, of Christian life then becomes a matter of driving a car right. and trying to figure out what happens when the car breaks apart. Right. Which is why I tend to see it as, yeah, we'll get into a car, but your best friend is in the car. He's the one who's driving. Yeah. See, that? Yeah. see, this is 
this is the thing. Again, owner's manual seems to suggest that I'm in charge. Right, right. And then again, deeply, deeply American temptation. Because Filipinos do not really see themselves as in charge. The family trumps the individual. But here, here in the United States, the individual trumps everything. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yet we go we go searching for something else to tell us what the, what to do since we don't have that natural. Yeah, yeah. That's, so we we want to be respectful of your time. I know that you are here uh, for the coming week. Well, just for two more days. So I, days. I'm I'm speaking at the Vienna Institute here in Notre Dame. So okay. I'll be speaking about dignity this afternoon, and then tomorrow I'll be talking about embryo research. Okay, and um, the implications of embryo research in the in the life of the church and the life of us of of the common. That's great. That was really great. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. God bless you on your work. Yes, we really appreciate it. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can email a link to this episode at thatsosecondmillennium.net, share the post for this episode from our Facebook page, or you can use your podcast app's built-in sharing feature.